Hey everybody, welcome to the official Screenwriting Podcast number 21. I'm Adam Levenberg. Quick note that on June 1st, I'm starting another six-week screenwriting workshop at the Director's Playhouse in West L.A. It runs Saturday mornings from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. It's pretty awesome. I have a good lineup of movies that we're going to be using this time and a lot of interaction. And we're actually dropping the price. Uh, we're going to make it a little more affordable for those who would love to participate. So info on that at thedirectorsplayhouse.com. This week I'm going to talk about some of the strategies that we saw in Iron Man 3. I had hoped to do a crossover episode with the Bat Signal podcast, and it just didn't work out technically. So we're going to be talking here about just some of the fun techniques that Shane Black used, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about Shane Black too, I guess. I saw one of the most amazing films that I've seen in the last couple of years. I strongly recommend you rush to see it. It is on Netflix streaming. It's a documentary called The Imposter, and it is about a boy who disappeared in Texas, in the 1990s, and then three years later, this Spanish adult pretended to be this missing kid um, in Texas, and yet he spoke with a very heavy Spanish accent. He, of course, did not know anything about this kid's life, and on top of that, he was a 23-year-old adult pretending to be a 15- or 14-year-old boy. Um, it's an insane documentary. The things that happen, you just couldn't write stuff this amazing. And by the way, I'm not giving anything away. From the very beginning, you're clear on the fact because there's interviews with the guy himself, with the imposter himself. So you know that he was pretending to be this kid, and that's part of the structure of the documentary. Interestingly, though, the other reason that I bring this up to talk about is because that's where the idea of the horror movie Orphan came from. You know, I always talk about this. If you can't open the newspaper and find one or two things that would be a great jumping off point for a movie, you're not thinking hard enough or you're not thinking like a screenwriter. And in this case, he actually had no ill intent. He clearly had some, you know, he just had mental issues. He he was sort of a defective person who wanted to be taken care of. But, you know, the idea of this movie, Orphan, I, I'm certain if I were to read articles with... Um, the writer of Orphan, uh, David Leslie Johnson, who's a great fucking writer, um, I'm certain that he would reference this because that's where the idea came from. This, The case of the imposter, you know, it's not something that wasn't out there in the media. In fact, it got tons of media coverage sort of on the tail end of it. Well, actually, probably some media coverage also when the guy was found and then, of course, when he was found to be an imposter. So this stuff is out there. It's one of the wackiest cases that the American government ever had to deal with. And, and of course, the documentary follows that where you see how the FBI deals with it because, you know, again, they have to interview this kid because he was supposedly kidnapped and taken overseas and they have to figure out what really happened. And then everybody starts getting suspicious. Although, if you see the documentary, I am convinced that the FBI agent was just a fucking idiot. Um, you know, there's no excuse for her not picking up on some of this stuff. You know, the, the kid has reasons or the man has reasons why he speaks with a Spanish accent, but even his word usage suggests a foreign language speaker. So the fact that she wasn't picking up on it, um, su suggests a level of idiocy that I, I would be, I'm surprised by because, you know, she's an FBI agent, but clearly they're not all Clary Starling, I guess is the, <laughs> the lesson on that. So anyway, um, ideas come from everywhere, and clearly the movie Orphan, which is a horror movie about an adult woman pretending to be a young girl who's adopted into this family, um, clearly 
you you know you you can't stick to the actual events you gotta you gotta sort of make a movie out of it that's what orphan is um i i have some really great questions this week to talk about before we get to iron man the first one I want to talk about real quickly because somebody had an idea for a TV series and emailed me about it. And the premise is it's Americans, but it's set in a foreign country. Let's say it's Brazil. And, you know, it's the idea for a TV show, but it's set in Brazil, but it's with Americans. And then somebody else uh, in the media uh, has sold a show in that country, sort of with the same premise of Americans in this country. And... You know, the the writer is asking me, well, what do I do? How do I get an agent for this? What, you know, does this mean that, or, you know, clearly he was under the impression that because another show sold, that means that there's some interest in this or, and, and no, that it doesn't mean that to me. In fact, um, you know, what it says is that there were reasons that that other show sold. I think there's other reasons that that show sold in addition, just seeing the names involved with it, I think there's reasons in addition to the quality of the concept. Because right now, you sort of have to be able to market something. You have to be able to uh, not only, and when I say market, I mean also partner. You know, th that is a huge element now. So if you're making a TV show in a foreign country, one of the things I might do is look to find some local company to help produce it and finance it. And then you'd come to America and say, look, I have this piece of the financing. I'd like to sell the American rights. And you could take it a step farther because um, you don't, if you have that big piece of the puzzle already, you know, the production and the money or some of the money uh, or a, and again, when I say some, you really want to have as much as possible because then you can go to, you don't even have to sell it to a network. You could sell it to a Netflix. You could sell it to, a, well, Netflix actually has more than network money. So that was actually a poor example. Um, although if you look, Netflix's first original series was a show called Lilyhammer, which was, I'm pretty sure a, co-production where they sort of jumped in and just partially financed something that was already happening and by the way that's how a lot of movies happen um i think even hbo now is doing some movies like that where it's like really a bbc production but they're kicking in money and calling it an hbo films movie here um you know that's the way a lot of independent films happen that can also happen with tv where you don't have to sell it to a network anymore you can sell it to hulu you can sell it to say uh, crackle you can you know sell it to various places where you they don't have to come up with a lot of money because they don't have a lot of money necessarily they just have to come up with a tiny little piece in order to get the american distribution um or you do it as a web series you know don't don't be afraid to do that um especially if you have something which is not which is different but doesn't have a very high budget you can go out and film it yourself and that would be my advice to that writer in that case a really interesting email that i got about somebody whose short film was hijacked where he said hey i wrote this short film and now i find out that the, they're making it it's in production they changed 20 percent of the script and the director rewrote it and is now putting his name on it as a also written by so it's like written by original writer and now director's name and the writer's like what do i do and the answer you do nothing because most of the time if you know everybody 
sort of does it, you know, properly, you've already signed away all your rights. And anybody who's going to go off and make a short film with somebody else's script is going to require that that writer give up all their rights. Because how much would it suck if you invested five grand, ten grand, or even just a lot of your time in a short, and then somebody comes along, or the writer comes back and says, well, I don't like that you changed that, or this line got dropped. I mean, fuck, stuff happens in editing. You could shoot it the way it's written and then edit it differently. So the idea that a writer would have any control over that is insanity and something that not anybody would want to allow to happen. However, if it happens to be your short film that they're going to go and make, here's what I would recommend you do. Because again, you're probably going to sign away the rights, meaning that once they have it, there's nothing you can do about it. But you can find out what their intent is. You can ask, are you going to rewrite it? Again, if they do, you're kind of shit out of luck. Unless you want to sue them and say that they lied and then hold up the release of a short film, which is ridiculous because nobody sees short films anyway. <laughs> you know, the idea, and, and they're not monetarily they're not like a piece of business you know they're they're not maybe they'll make back a couple thousand dollars and i know somebody who had a short film that was able to make you know 15 grand back or something so it's that'll happen but again to start getting involved with lawyers and lawsuits you're talking about you know fuck it costs like 300 bucks just to file to go to a court and file legal paperwork you know then you have to have a lawyer write it up that costs another couple hundred bucks thousand bucks two thousand bucks and then you got to respond to that paperwork and that has to be filed suddenly you're spending more on the legal stuff than the short film it's not worth anybody's time just if somebody wants to shoot your short film it is proper though to say hey let me see what you've shot before let me see tell me about what your intention is and shut the fuck up you know this is not you being interviewed they've read your script now your job is to suss out is this person right for me, do I care that much? You know, hey, it's I, I say take the leap anyway. But it is fair to say, let me see what you've done before. Because if they haven't filmed something with any sort of quality control, if they really don't know what they're doing, and look, sometimes people are very proud of the shorts and they send them to me and I look at them and I'm like, Jesus Christ, like, didn't you think of using, I don't know, like microphones instead of live sound or if, you know, to like redub it or something? I mean, you know, sometimes I'll see these things, but um, hey, you know... It, it really um, comes down to every situation is its own, you know, deal. And you should just ask questions, do your due diligence, and then maybe it'll work out nicely, maybe not. Um, you can have them put it in writing, though. This is the film I want to shoot. This is the film I'm going to shoot. I'm not going to change it. You can do that, but... Um, you know, stuff changes. So, you know, personally, if I was in that situation as a director, I probably would walk away. But if you can get them to put it in writing, then fine. At the very least, you know, the only thing that it might do is stop them from going and thinking about rewriting it behind your back. Um, you know, sometimes when you can get somebody to commit to something and just say that they're committing to doing something, they'll actually follow through with it. I don't think there's anything you could do in any case anyway. Really great question here about... Um, this is about writing stuff if you don't have the rights to the underlying material. Can you do it? Um, meaning like if you love a Steve, you know, I'm going to use Stephen King as an example because Stephen King is actually somebody who has said that he would be open to looking at screenplays and possibly giving the rights to people um, who, you know, who have written original or adapted screenplays based on his work. Um, I think it's really cool of him to do that. You know, please remember, though, the fact that he said this. By the way, somebody told me about that, like, in the 90s. So it's very possible Stephen King is no longer doing that. Um, but the other thing is, even if it was in the 1990s, you would have had to have depended on Stephen King having the time to then sit down and read it and liking it enough 
I mean, again, I think that's the biggest battle. The biggest battle is, is the guy going to sit down and fucking look at it? Because, you know, a lot of times in, especially in Hollywood, you have people who will literally sit on scripts where they have actual offers on the table. Um, and, you know, it sort of requires some pushing to get them to read it. So the idea that somebody's going to sit down for free and read your adaptation of their book is, again, it depends on who it is. I think it's often the, the best thing you want to do is, A, find out if the rights are available. You can do that. You can call, find out who the agent is. You can even email the writer and say, hey, are the rights available? Or, you know, hey, who's your agent? Call the agent up. Find out, are the rights available? Um, you used to have to, go through the, have to go through the publishing house to do that. Now, but that was before you could just directly reach out and find writers on the Internet. Um, so, you know, my suggestion would be do that. Just reach out to the writer and say, hey, are the rights available? And then you can go ahead and do whatever the fuck you want because, um, you know, it's a complicated thing. But if you have a burning desire to do it, hey, you know, um, why not? Um, here's another question. If someone is writing a remake and it's stated online that the script is written but no movement with the film has happened, how is it best to get a studio interested? Well, I guess this would mean if you had your own pitch. You had your own pitch based on a project um, that you heard, you know, hey, say that you knew that they were redoing Cannonball Run. You read somewhere that they were going to remake Cannonball Run. Um, and you had your own idea for the Cannonball Run reboot. And, you know, you read that, oh gosh, off the top of my head, Adam Hers, who did American Pie, I think it was announced he was going to rewrite or write a Cannonball Run reboot. And that was probably a decade ago, eight years ago, nine years ago. Um, so nothing's happened with it. Well, first of all, here's the one thing you have to keep in mind. You never, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know that it might not be a priority project at the studio. I mean, remember, entertainment journalism is bullshit. Entertainment journalism is, and now it's all PR. For a while, there were actual journalists covering the entertainment business, covering the development world. That is gone. All you have are press releases that are put out, essentially, by um, by production companies and studios and so forth. So it is, it is not, you're not really finding out what's actually happening with projects. And very often the people who talk about them, if a writer has another project and he got a new movie and he's talking about, oh, and what about this other thing? Sometimes he doesn't know because they've hired a new writer and he's not going to say, well, I've been replaced or, you know, he might not even know what, what's going on or he might think something's happening and it's not. You know, that's also very possible because he calls up the executive and says, hey, what's going on? Oh, yeah, no, we love this script and everything. But that's what the executive says. It doesn't mean that the executive actually loves the script or that there's any intention of making this movie. Um, you know, you have to be careful with this. Remember, just like with anything else, it is your job to um, to sort of make it a little bit different. I mean, I had a friend who actually said at one point, I want to rewrite Cannonball Run or I want to reboot Cannonball Run. And I said, why? Why do you need the rights to Cannonball Run in order to write a movie? You know, there were non-Cannonball Run, Cannonball Run movies. You know, Cannonball Run, by the way, was a race movie. It was sort of a mad, 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 mad world type a lot of different characters racing against each other. Follow That Bird was a fucking Cannonball Run movie. Follow That Bird, which is a Sesame Street movie. And I recall it being a really cool movie. Um, you know, that was the same idea. So I don't think that the writers of Follow That Bird, uh, Judy Freudberg and, oh, who's the other one? You know, they wrote An American Tale. Also, I don't think that they, I, 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 in fact, I'm certain that they did not get the rights to the Cannonball Run. They didn't. You know why? Because you don't fucking need them. So don't worry about it. Do your thing. Make it original 
And, you know, if you're depending that much on the source material that you're doing it scene by scene, then yes, you do need that. Interestingly, uh, the script for the Soap Dish remake, which is called El Fuego Caliente, um, which reimagines the Sally Field character as a early 40s uh hispanic woman i guess sort of um maybe written for like an eva longoria or somebody like that she would be great in that role um that is actually a scene for scene rewrite however uh the scenes function differently and the jokes are completely different which is a really interesting take because most people don't do rewrites like that they go off they do their own thing and all you're left with is the source concept and maybe some of the character ideas but that's it. You know, the, the movie sort of uh, moves on its own track. So, again, um, you know, you have to be careful with this stuff. Interestingly, though, here's something that goes on in the entertainment business. I'll talk a little bit more about this, and then I'll jump into Iron Man, I promise. Um, there was, I'm just going to say, it was Altered States. Uh, a writer had an interesting take on Altered States and got a producer at the studio that owned it interested, and they brought they brought in the pitch, meaning, like, that's how it works. Like, you find a producer, because I guess the producers of the original Altered States aren't around. If they are, then you got to go to those people. But most of the time, um, you know, you look for a the biggest production company at the studio that owns the rights to the property, and you go in with them, and you pitch a remake based on something the studio already owns, and they're often happy to move those things forward. So in this case, they didn't buy the pitch, but the writer really wanted to write it, and they said, well, you know, write it. the studio will never say write it on spec, but, you know, the producer can ask the executive, hey, can we, you know, will you look at it? Like, do you hate the pitch? Do you? And if the executive says, look, I can't get everybody excited about doing this movie, but, you know, hey, more power to you. He's a good writer, and he wants to go do it. So this writer went off and did it and started wrote a script on spec that actually I happened to read, and it was fucking awesome. And in the interim, somebody else walked in with an Altered States pitch, and they bought it. Um, maybe the writer had a little bit more heat on him at the time. But, you know, you end up in a situation where a writer now has a, a script that you can't do much with. Although, here's the flip side of that. Because then you say, well, you're, then you're boxed in. You can't do anything because now the studio is making another Altered States movie, which, by the way, they never made. Um, you know, personally, if I were... Uh, you know, that writer, I might try to get the studio to look at it at a different point in time. But um, you can always, one th one strategy that's used by producers is that they can often sort of uh, repurpose an idea. Meaning like, um, you know, I remember, I guess it was maybe Pacifier, where people would have pitches for, well, this could be a remake of the, or it could be a sequel to the Pacifier. So if we were to take it to Disney, it would be a Pacifier sequel. But we got a whole other way of sort of approaching it um if you know for all the other pitches because you never want to limit yourself to one buyer um but of course you go to the you know the the biggest area of business first which is doing the sequel and you know the interesting thing about that and i don't i'm certain we never did anything with that but the the fun uh thing about that is that when you think of how much work it requires to rewrite you're not writing a whole script it's just a pitch so how much are you rewriting i don't know a paragraph that's all you need to do. You need to rewrite about a paragraph and come up with sort of a different backstory, different approach, different name for the character, and bam, you have a relatively original concept that you can sell to another studio if the studio that doesn't like your sequel is, um, you know, is uh, not interested. And I'm, so I, I think I remember somebody actually selling a script that was sort of intended as a Fast and Furious pitch. Um, or a Fast and Furious sequel pitch, um, and didn't, you know, it didn't get going. 
Uh, and then they went off and sold a different racing movie. And Universal, I, I'm pretty sure it was Universal that ended up buying the project. I guess because they didn't want a competing project. Sometimes that happens. Maybe they liked the script. Or maybe, oddly enough, they bought it because they said, oh, this could be a Fast and Furious thing. Not remembering that they actually had turned down that idea as a pitch for whatever sequel they happened to be working on at that point in time. Shit's crazy like that. Like, it, it really just depends on what's going on. And the, the answer one year might not be the same as the answer the next year. And, you know, it, you can't sort of limit yourself. But um, how this all applies to you, especially if you're unrepresented, I don't know. I, I don't remember quite where I was going with that. All right, so let's move into techniques that are used in Iron Man. First up, Shane Black's one of the greatest writers or screenwriters who's ever lived. <laughs> um, he has a lot of really interesting qualities, namely amazing dialogue amazing dialogue and he understands how screenplays function of course shane black wrote lethal weapon he wrote uh, the last boy scout he wrote the long kiss goodnight which is one of my favorite movies with gina davis and samuel l jackson and you know the long kiss goodnight was actually sold it was sold for four million dollars which was a record at the time for a spec script and something that almost never happens. I think Panic Room also sold for four million. But um, you know, the, it, at the time, they actually had a top executives come to the agency to read the script, and they had to bid on it. And New Line bought it. Um, and luckily, they got it into production before Cutthroat Island was released. Because if they hadn't uh, been in production, they would have just shut that movie down. Because uh, Rennie Harlan, the director, and Gina Davis at the time were married. And they had this big, you know, Rennie Harlan was a huge action director. He did Die Hard 2. He did Cliffhanger. And they started setting up all these action projects for Gina Davis. And Cutthroat Island uh you know, it was a pirate movie that at the time the conventional wisdom was the pirate movies didn't work and this proved it. And they ended up, uh, the film itself made about $8 million in American theaters on a $90 million budget. It closed the studio that financed it. Um, and, you know, luckily I think New Line was already in production on The Long Kiss Goodnight, so they kind of couldn't shut it down. And the film did about, you know, $35, $40 million domestic. Um, cost more than that. I'm sure it made back its money with video and stuff. But um, Shane Black's one of the great screenwriters, and he directed a movie with Robert Downey Jr. called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. If you haven't seen it, you're not trying hard enough, period. Like, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is one of the best movies I've ever seen, and it is witty, smart, fun, pretty badass. Um, I'm certain you will like it. If you don't, Watch it again. It has the Big Lebowski quality to it, meaning that there's so much going on. It's a detective story, and there's so much going on with so many ins and outs and so much random nuttiness that it can actually be hard to sort of digest the entire uh, why done it of it all on the first viewing. Um, so, you know, if you feel a little bit lost in it, feel free to watch it again and things will clarify. Okay, um, so Shane Black now does Iron Man 3, and there's a lot of fun techniques that he uses in order to, uh, you know, do a Shane Black version of an Iron Man story. Uh, the first is the highly conversational voiceover. This is something that's really interesting, and they do it in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and this is done as sort of an introduction. Now, you know that I don't like voiceovers. I think they are almost all of the time, when done by unrepresented writers, done wrong and unnecessary. However, 
This is Shane Black, and he can do whatever the fuck he wants, and he's got to sort of catch us up. So this highly conversational voiceover, what's fun about it is it sounds improvised. It sounds like it's not being read off the page by very specific words picked by a wordsmith. It sounds like somebody kind of riffing, stream of consciousness, unpolished. And I think that that's uh, something that's used in the very beginning of the film that makes it feel a little bit different. Uh, but it serves the same purpose, which is it catches us up. Um, it allows us insight into a character who at the moment has nobody else to talk to. So that, that expository information, remember expository information is the information that we need in order to keep the movie going um, and to know where everybody is and why they're there. Um, that, you know, is taken care of there. And I'm pretty sure that it drops it. I, I'm going to have to look at the movie again. I'm pretty sure that it doesn't come back. So we don't constantly have him talking to the audience. I like that. Next up, um, event in the past comes back to haunt the hero. I really like this, especially for Iron Man, because it doesn't require a new sort of... It, it sort of exists in the previously uh, existing timeline where something happens in 1999 and, you know, that is what inspires the current story and the current conflict. And it's something that completely, you know, um, you, you, what actually happens is that uh, Tony Stark humiliates the Guy Pierce character humiliates him. Guy Pierce is a scientist who has this breakthrough and wants, you know, some venture capital or something. And Tony Stark says, oh, I'll meet you up on the roof in a minute. And it's New Year's and the guy finds himself standing up there alone and he's been blown off. And it's a cruel act. Um, and, and we find out that at that point, the guy actually had seriously considered suicide. Um, so that's actually another thing, which is the humiliation of the villain. That is a strongly... Uh, a really strong way to get a character to fight back, especially one with um, a negative goal. In this case, he definitely wants to take out Tony Stark in addition to his other plans. So, But the event in the past I like because it makes it part of the current timeline. It's something the hero has forgotten about, but other characters haven't. And it keeps the movie going. Okay, pop culture references. Shane Black is wonderful with this. Some of these things I think would work on the script, on the script, uh, script on the page. Some of them would not. Um, you know, there's a great moment where this uh, kid comes up to uh, uh, Tony Stark in a restaurant and asks for his autograph, and uh, the kid looks like uh, what's his name in A Christmas Story, Peter Billingsley, and he Tony Stark goes, "Oh, I loved you in A Christmas Story." I think that that joke. I don't know if it's on the page in the script. If it is, then that's fine because Shane Black was writing and directing it and, you know, that would work. But if you're just a writer, there's a lot of setup that's required. Like you'd have to say a kid walks over who looks like the kid from A Christmas Story. And then and then he says, oh, I loved you in A Christmas Story. Um, it, I, I don't know that it would work. I'm not even sure that it wasn't something that was just improvised on the set based on the actor kid and Robert Downey Jr. or somebody else pointing out, doesn't he look like, you know, Peter Billingsley? Um, so, you know, you want to be careful with stuff like that because if it's not funny, if it's not going to get a laugh, then you don't want to use it. It's not important. If you were writing a spec script, I, I wouldn't recommend doing something like that. Um, but uh, there's other, you know, pop culture jokes in there. There's that uh, his bodyguard is obsessed with Downton Abbey. 
And, you know, right there, there's that inverse quality that you look for in jokes. Tough bodyguard. Well, what's the thing that he would be watching? Well, you want to pick the opposite of that. You want to pick something that's sort of got a feminine tilt to it. Although everybody pretty much loves Downton Abbey. So I don't know that it even totally, um, totally satisfies the potential of the joke. But you'd want to look for that inverse quality and the tough bodyguard being obsessed with the soap opera is a lot of fun. Um, there was a joke, hey, you like that Westworld? That is a reference to the Michael Crichton amusement park movie that preceded Jurassic Park. Uh, he wrote a, a movie or a book and then a movie about a, an amusement park that was like an old west town where populated by robots pretending to be... Uh, you know, cowboys and stuff, and uh, things go awry. So, in any case, um, we had... Oh, and then he calls uh, the Mandarin, the... the uh, What's his name? Uh, ben Kingsley character, he's, he calls him Sir Lawrence Oblivier. And then later he refers to him as Ringo. And I totally picked up on the Ringo thing. He was definitely doing a Ringo Stark uh, sort of voice and accent. And, of course, that came in uh, as a joke as a result of that. So um, those are some of them. Let's see what else we want to talk about right here. So the, the pop culture stuff, you don't want to go nuts on it. You know, there was another joke that was slipped in. This is kind of interesting about uh, giving Pepper a customized rabbit, which, by the way, is a sex toy. That's a device that became famous because of sex in the city. And by the way, they're incredibly dangerous. For those of you who listen to Savage Love Podcast, um, you know that the plastics that are used in a lot of those crappy devices that come from China. You know, if, they, if anything smells like plastic, it is not a good idea to be touching it or putting it in your body. Just a, a little PSA there. Because um, it means that the plastic is breaking down and there's a lot of chemicals leaching out of it. And uh, that stuff is purely, uh, I mean, it's, it's all like uh, phthalates, which are really bad for you. And it's like 60% made up of that shit. Anyway, um, moving on. Pure visual gags. You have a dog with boobs, uh, like statue kind of thing in his house. Um, you know, that's probably really tough to pull off on the page. Um, I'd, I'd have to look at the script to see how they did that. But you can do that if it's, you know, you, you want to use a pure visual gag to just get a quick laugh. Um, just make sure that it's clear. I think that the dog with boobs thing would probably be too complicated to really express on the page in a way that would get a joke uh, across. But you could come up with something. I can't come up, you know, I'm, I'm recording a podcast right now. I can't come up with sort of an alternative. But you come up with an alternative, something else that would be just as ridiculous but a little bit clearer so that you could get that laugh on the page as opposed to needing uh, a production designer to really create this item that's going to get a laugh from the audience. Uh, number six, inner turmoil. It's interesting that they use the backstory of the Avengers to give Tony Stark uh, panic attacks. That's how it's explained, that he hasn't quite gotten over this craziness of the events, and they, they talk about it a little bit, but it's used as a device in order to to knock our character down and give him something to overcome. And I think he has at least four panic attacks in the movie. So we have a superhero who is crippled by his own emotional turmoil. That's awesome. Um, and they do it really well. And they, they knock some jokes out of it also. So I kind of like that. 
Um, number seven, using untraditional items and action sequences. This is huge, and you should be doing this anyway in almost any movie um, where somebody uses, or especially in a comedy, action movie, uh, thriller, you know, you should be using untraditional items in action sequences. In this case, he uses a piano to take out a helicopter. I guess you'd have to see the sequence to see exactly how it works, but there's a piano in his house, and he uses it, uh, launches it basically into a helicopter, which is firing on his house, and takes out a helicopter. Uh, you know, there's sort of a glass wall, so he can slide the piano out, and bam, it, you know, hits the helicopter. That's fucking awesome. Um, part of a huge action sequence. And remember that, you know, characters have to use bizarre items, whatever it is, they have to live off the land talk about that a little bit in my book um you know whatever is there so um you know you don't want them necessarily using the gun in their pocket that's just lazy um the, number eight evolving the character tony stark is kind of an asshole i mean it's kind of his charm and one of the things that they do here is that he apologizes a lot he's learning to apologize and i think that probably comes from you know robert Downey jr has a very public um relationship with substance abuse and recovery and it's something that he talks about and you know is sort of part of his life as he continues um and you know shane black used to be a big party guy and you know doesn't really throw parties anymore to my knowledge so um you know this is this is sort of 12 step stuff um that that we're seeing you know as as sort of part of the uh the underlying uh inner character arc stuff that they're using and here it's learning to apologize learning to recognize when you are wrong and immediately on the spot making those amends so that the person that you've just sort of harmed or sort of lashed out against um you can you know make those amends right then and there um so you know they applied that that sort of element uh, to the character here Number nine, I'm calling this character, there's got to be a better name for it. I can't find another reference to a character like this, so I'm going to call it the Klein Bottle, which is the, a Klein Bottle, if you don't know, has no sides. You can look it up on, just Google it, Klein Bottle. And it has no sides. It's basically, looks like sort of a wormhole turned inside out. And um, it's a character on every side. And in this case, it's the Maya character, played by Rebecca Hall, who is on everybody's side she's not evil she's working with the good guy she's working with she saves the good guy she saves iron man and pepper from you know an attack um she's working with the bad guy she then after iron man and pepper have been kidnapped um or iron man's been caught she then actually tries to get him to team up with the villain. I mean, she sort of makes a play for that and says, look, you know, here he's not all bad and, you know, maybe we can work this out and we can all get on the same team. And I think that's a really interesting character to have because it doesn't just make her good or bad. It makes her complicated, but in a very clear-cut way where we understand with each revelation sort of what her goal is. And... Um, you know, she even has a heart-to-heart -heart with Pepper. They team up Pepper with Maya uh, for a small section of the movie, and then they're both uh, kidnapped, and then we find out that only Pepper's been kidnapped because the other one's working with the villain. Um, so, you know, I think uh, that's an interesting character to play, and it keeps the audience on their toes, where, you know, you're, in, and it shows sort of the expression of a more complex type of character. And again, you know, these things are not, 
creative necessarily. It's like, okay, I'm going to use in this spot, I'm going to use a character who's kind of on everybody's side. Uh, I think the, interestingly, another example of that might be the Madonna character in, uh, in Dick Tracy, where he says, whose side are you on? And she, she, oh no, the, the response, her response to that in that movie, I think was the side I'm always on mine, but really she's somebody who sort of has her own agenda and is playing different characters off of each other. Um, and not necessarily intending to kill the hero. And I really like that in a villain character where they're trying to achieve something different, uh, that conflicts with the hero, but is not necessarily a, I want to kill the hero because I'm a bad guy kind of approach. Um, the dialogue, again, I think I've referenced this probably in a couple of different ways, but the dialogue is just fucking awesome. You know, there's the cool thing that you want to look for with Shane Black is these lines of dialogue that just crackle. There's a great moment where Tony puts a gun on somebody and he says, you've got a minute to live, fill it with words. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and he wants the guy to, you know, give him some information. Um, kiss, kiss, bang, bang is like all that. Every scene has got sort of a line where you're like, fuck, that's good. Um, there's another one early bird gets the worm but the second mouse gets the cheese that's sort of a shane black's got a lot of those things like fun little things that again and i've talked about this before i it doesn't mean that he's written these like especially that early bird gets the worm but second mouse gets the cheese um i i, I doubt he wrote that probably maybe the you've got a minute to live fill it with words he probably wrote that but the early bird thing is more of a line just like i've talked about before on this podcast shane black will actually have characters tell a joke to another character um, and, uh, a great example of which is, you know, well, you made an assumption and when you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you and umption. I don't think Shane Black wrote that. He probably just heard it somewhere. Um, today you have the internet to find all that stuff. Um, okay. So the funny henchman surrender, funny henchman surrender is another technique. We see this, you know, and, and by the way, I, I love this to talk about this because it's not unique. Okay, the great moment, for those of you who haven't seen Iron Man, is that um, at one point during the big, or during a uh, action sequence where Tony's taken out all the henchmen, he has a guy at gunpoint, and the henchman puts his hands up and he says, honestly, I hate working here. They're so weird. And, of course, he lets the guy escape. Because the guy's not trying to kill Tony. He's saying, please let me go. You know, I hate it. They're so weird. I hate working here. They're so weird. Um, and it may, it's a very human moment. It's a great joke. It probably gets the biggest laugh in the movie. And guess what? How far back do we have to go to find another one? I just saw this. And th that's what makes it sort of a technique or a trope, not necessarily a, you know, fun, creative thing. Um, in the town, there's the funny surrender. Um, during the big showdown, the big chase at the end of the town where they're trying to get back onto the island. Um, and I forget, I think they're already back on the island. But when they park the car, these bank robbers, you know, there's an APB. They've tried to shut down the bridge. They've tried, there's, an a, there's an all points bulletin out for these guys. And these guys get out of their truck and they're like dressed in costumes. They've got machine guns. They've got bags of money. And then they turn their head and there's a cop sitting in his car right there like right across the street he's right there and these guys are armed with machine they got machine guns hanging around their neck and what does the cop do he turns his head away from them and they run or they set the car on fire and then they run um 
So, you know, I think that that right there, we have an example of the funny henchman surrender. Um, in this case, the cop who is turning his head because he's, there's no way, you know, he has a gun that's in his pocket or, you know, in his holster and these guys have machine guns ready to shoot. Um, so it's sort of a, a stalemate on both sides and, the, and it actually makes the characters, the good guy, I'm sorry, the heroes of the film or the, it, it makes them cool because they don't kill him. The cop is saying, okay, you could either kill me or I can look the other way, so why don't I just look the other way? And they're happy to go along with that. I love that. That's a lot of fun. Um, and we see it pop up again in Iron Man. And by the way, I'm not saying that that comes from the town. I'm sure that you can probably come up with some other great examples. Okay, moving on, turning it into a game. We talked about this. Oh, there was a good example in Jack Reacher, which is on Redbox. You should see it. It's fucking awesome. Um, you know, the example, the example that I use in The Sixth Sense... Um, is uh, where, where when Bruce Willis is at, uh, shows up at the kid's apartment and he's waiting for him when the kid comes home from school and Bruce Willis says, well, you know, why don't we play a game? I'll ask you a question if I'm, or I'll tell you something and if I'm right, you take a step towards me and if I'm wrong, you take a step back. And he gives, and you know, and he says a couple of things and the kid moves forward and then Bruce Willis starts getting things wrong and he starts stepping away from him. Um, here in Iron Man, we have the barrel of monkeys in the sky. And it's actually said out loud. We're playing barrel of monkeys in the sky. Um, and it becomes an action sequence. So, you know, the idea here is it as much of a game per se as characters actually playing a game like they do in The Sixth Sense in order to divulge information and add some tension to a scene? No. But where does the idea of let's play Barrel of Monkeys in the Sky and have a huge action sequence? It comes from the sort of screenwriting, pull it out of the deck, uh, turn it into a game card. You know, and that is something that you should look to do. I, you know, that's something that screenwriters, if you didn't do it in this script or the script before it, you probably should have characters playing some sort of game as means of negotiation uh, in your next script. It's the kind of thing that like just it's one of those things that pops up a lot. Um, and we're going to wrap it up with um, the characters call stuff out in Shane Black movies. Scream is a great example. It's not the first film that ever did this, but it's very popular for it, where characters will start talking about sort of the function of the screenplay. And in this movie, the kid says, we're connected. You know, uh, one of the things, the movie, by the way, is sort of a detective story, and uh, at least for the first half of the movie, because these movies are huge, and this, for the first half, it's a detective movie. He is playing detective. And, you know, he teams up with this kid. Uh, and it, by the way, that's its own little strategy or its own uh, fun or not so fun uh, technique. Like, team the badass up with the kid for no other reason than to give them somebody interesting to talk to. And the kid actually says to him, like, you can't leave me. Like, we're connected. And that's exactly what has to happen in the screenplay. You have to give them enough moments together so that it's not just a passing um, interaction where there's some connection between these characters. And again, the cool thing about Shane Black is the character, you know, the kid says, we're connected. And then Tony Stark makes about three jokes about that line. And you've got to make fun of it. If you're going to be that naked about what you're doing, then you've got to be able to call it out. And I like how Shane Black does this. Interestingly, um, 
Spider-Man doesn't. I have this note here. I don't quite know exactly if this was what I was looking for. I think my internet might have shut down or something. Um, in the in the movie Spider-Man, uh, the character says, uh, you know, oh, here it is. Uh, th th this is the moment where... <laughs> this is the moment where uh, the Green Goblin sort of offers to team up with Spider-Man. And he says, this is why only fools are heroes, because you never know when some lunatic will come along with a sadistic choice. Let the woman you love die, uh, or let die the woman you love or suffer the little children. Make your choice and see how the hero is rewarded. So here's the technique that's basically being called out with the words sadistic choice. I mean, at some point, the villain in any superhero movie is going to say you can't, like, I'm going to make you decide. It's this or it's that. And the hero needs both and has to figure out a way to get both. Um, so, you know, in this case, it's you can save the kids or you can save uh, Mary Jane. And, you know, I, I really don't like, like, I remember hearing it and I just kind of went, ouch. I remember in seeing Spider-Man because it, it's sort of that moment. It's calling out the function inside the screenplay, but it's not having any fun with it. It's just literally sort of exposing it for what it is, which is villain must make hero, ha you know, makes sadistic choice or, uh, or villain gives hero sadistic choice at this point in the storyline. Um, but it's something you'll always see in, in these movies. Um, so again, I find it interesting that Shane Black makes fun of this. Um, Oh, and then, again, this is a technique, I know I've referred to it before, but the offer of connection that we see in that Spider-Man offer. Um, where, uh, okay, uh, here's the Spider-Man thing. Um, the Green Goblin says to Spider-Man, I could squash you like a bug right now, but I'm offering you a choice. Join me. Imagine what we could accomplish together, what we could create, or what we could destroy. Cause the deaths of countless innocents in selfish battle again and again and again until we're both dead is that what you want so what the villain is saying is we're probably just going to keep going head to head we both have a lot of powers here and a lot of abilities and a lot of people are going to die until one of us kicks off so why don't we just team up and see where we can go with that and that's something that almost always happens and of course it happens a few times in the iron man movie where even after rebecca hall's maya, maya character says to him hey you should team up with guy pierce even later guy pierce is saying hey why don't we team up this is silly let's not keep fighting with ourselves we can do bigger and better things together as a team um and one last thing one last thing i promise um the last technique Shane Black uses, and it's the most obvious thing because it's a big summer movie, is Christmas. I can't remember if in Lethal Weapon it took place at Christmas, but it might. Um, and in uh, you know The Long Kiss Goodnight, it's Christmas time. Why? Because you get the lights, you get the songs, you get the... You know, there's a great moment in Long Kiss Goodnight where she's got to drive a drunk Santa back home because Santa gets, you know, the Santa that they, the neighbor who's dressed up like Santa's gotten too wasted and he tries to grab uh, Gina Davis's breast and she smacks him off and then doesn't see a deer in front of her car. And then that's how the accident happens where she recovers the am uh, from the amnesia that she's been suffering for seven years. Um, you know... Christmas is a technique in itself, and really the idea is big holiday, big excuse for fireworks. You know, hey, why not? You know, the end of the movie uh, Blowout, which is a great movie. I think I talked about a Brian De Palma movie, which you should see. It's awesome. 
definitely awesome with John Travolta, John Lithgow. And uh, the, the cool thing, you know, during the finale of that movie, it's July 4th, so there's fireworks above the villain who's, like, stabbing down. You know, he's got John Travolta pinned down and is trying to stab him, and you see the fireworks going off above his head. And it just sort of adds another layer, another visual layer. And that's something that you can really play into in your story. Um, you know, and it doesn't, it, it can be pretty subtle, you know, because you're not going to always be writing while well, Jingle Bells is on the soundtrack. Interestingly, they use Jingle Bells twice in, in Iron Man 3 because I saw two different versions mentioned in the, in the soundtrack listing at the end. Um, but, uh, you know, so not every Christmas thing, a lot of that will just be production design issues. Um, you know, whether there's Christmas lights up, but if somebody uses the Christmas lights to help strangle somebody because they're using an untraditional object on the fly in order to protect themselves and or kill somebody, um, then that is definitely something that belongs in the screenplay because it's an item that's being used. So you can, and you've established it by making the, you know, thing happen at Christmas. A lot of movies happen around the holidays. Uh, there's a reason for that. It's because holidays are a time when people come together and deal with their big issues and things blow up and and so forth. Um, the Ref is a movie that takes place at Christmas. Why? Because it's more interesting than if it took place on June 27th. I mean, you, you know, it just adds that extra element. Family coming over for dinner, a lot of... And if you haven't seen The Ref, I think I talked about it last week. See that movie too. Anyway, um, I'm Adam Levenberg. Again, my book, The Starter Screenplay, download it at Amazon or you can buy it from me at thestarterscreenplay.com. Please consider uh, checking out my screenwriting class at the Director's Playhouse, directorsplayhouse.com for more info. And again, I'm still doing uh, concept consultations, 99 bucks. I'll talk to you for an hour about if it's a short film, if it's a couple of pages of ideas, if it's an opening scene. You know, we can talk about that kind of stuff. And it's still $2.99 to hire me to read your screenplay, talk to you as long as I need to. I do notes on the script. Uh, literally inside of it, I make notations, and then I do a, a separate set of notes uh, in a Word document, and then I talk to you. If it takes four hours, I'll do that. The better the script is, the longer I spend with the writer, because then we can start talking about the scene work and really getting into it uh, in terms of the rewrite talk. So that's all for this week. I think probably I'll be talking about Star Trek next week if I've seen it by then. All right, have a good one.